0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is in 95.7 in Ottawa, and it's 106.5 in Toronto. You can also listen on the Radio Player Canada app, and if you download that app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM, you can then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show today Mr. Ken Coates. He is with the McDonald Laurier Institute, and he's a senior fellow there, and uh, we well, are here to talk with uh, uh, Ken about uh, a paper uh, entitled "Where we go from here it 's about Indigenous Prosperity at a Crossroads so first, uh, Ken, welcome to the show
2: it's great to be with you
0: Well, we thank you for taking the time to do so. Ken, if you don't mind, a little bit about the Mcdonald Laurier Institute. I was just looking it up and and you know I guess um, the the institute itself um, founded on on Sir John and McDonald and and Wilfred Laurier, uh, two of the, the key players, I guess, in in, in uh, who the Institute uh, sort of uh, shapes themselves around. As, of course, we know, uh, Sir John A. MacDonald is, is one of those characters who has recently been in the news in, in terms of its his treatment of indigenous people. Um, how has the Institute sort of looked at that in recent days and, and, and is uh, sort of, you know, dealing with that?
2: Well, the Institute takes a, a very historical look at, uh, at both the name, the Macdonald Lurie Institute, which is basically designed to uh, indicate our nonpartisan nature, mm. uh, the fact that we sort of respect national policy on a, on a national scale, and that we look at we're not approaching this as a conservative or liberal or NDP or any other political sort of party. Um, so that's our sort of our orientation. Uh, the founder, Brian Lee Crowley, is uh, very interested in Canadian political history. Uh, personally, I find I'm an historian by training and I find a lot of the conversation around Johnny MacDonald and uh, sort of the, the, the reinterpretation of history in the sense to sort of, I don't know you call it sort of cancel culture or whatever they want to describe it, um, I find that very helpful. Um, you know, everybody is a product of their times. Everybody relates to sort of different historical circumstances. Um, if we're going to have a very thoughtful and extensive discussion about the, uh, the merits of Johnny MacDonald, you'll discover that historians have been having that for for 50 years or 60 years. We we've not, as a professional group, you know, celebrated uncritically any of the political leaders in the country. And we've also worked very hard as as a as a profession um, and as political scientists to sort of put people in their in the context of their time. So Johnny McDonald was as much a person of his time as you are of yours. Um and you you retroactively you can't take the values of 2020 and and sort of find an enormous fault with somebody from uh, 150 or 160 years ago um, without explaining and understanding sort of the circumstances of that day. Uh, basically, you know, Canadians at the time, non-Indigenous Canadians took a, a very uh, dismissive, uh, sometimes a brutal approach to Indigenous people. Uh, It was not just a political leader, it was the country as a whole. And so to sort of focus in and and start taking away, dismantling the the statues of one particular individual uh, without recognizing the complexity of their life and the range of contributions and challenges that they made um, really seems to me to sort of be off the mark. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do much better in our understanding of history than these sort of simplifications of very complex phenomena.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that because I think it kind of brings us forward into the topic of the day, and that is the the future of indigenous economic prosperity, uh, dealing with the the MLI's uh, uh, paper specifically uh, in, in terms of how you're looking at the prosperity for indigenous people going forward, as associated and related to uh, natural resources and and specifically the oil industry in terms of you know how these days it's all looking like it's uh, Sort of going away from those kind of technologies, and as we go to a greener economy, uh, it it could now have an impact on those indigenous communities that are, uh, you know, have recently started to reap some benefit from the the natural resources and the oil industry. But I guess that's part of why why I'm bringing that up is that you know, it seems very late as, you know, you, I think you allude to this to some degree, for indigenous people to even start benefiting. It's unfortunate that indigenous people were not partners, you know, from the very start, which, you know, as, as a lot of these, uh, these natural resources are being found on indigenous uh, territory uh, and the lands have been stripped away from them, uh, it's unfortunate that they, they have not been benefiting from the very start on this. How would you, how would you address well, that?
2: Well, i agree. And and if, and again, quite frankly, that's a message that Indigenous people have been making for a very long time. Mm-hmm. There were some communities that benefited from the earlier development of oil and gas. Those are the ones where the oil deposits were found on reserve land, not mm-hmm. on traditional territories, but mm-hmm. specifically on reserve land. Mm-hmm. And some of those com- communities, like Obima, made very, very large sums of money. Uh, off of the oil that was taken off their land yeah. uh, under odd circum- circumstances that was not very fair and just in its right. own way. Um, but, of, but of course, you know, you have a situation where Indigenous folks have been on the outside of all aspects of the Canadian economy. Absolutely, um, You can look at cafe culture, cafe culture in Toronto and say, you know, the First Nations there have not been you know, in, involved in and embraced in a very positive way over the last 150 years either. Um, and so we've done a really lousy job as a country of welcoming Indigenous people and, and facilitating and supporting their economic activities. Uh, the irony in this country right now, there's two parts to it. One is, is that there's an awful lot of attention on Indigenous protest against their resource projects and that uh, the protest is perfectly legitimate and important. Uh, but there's almost no attention on the fact that Indigenous peoples have been engaged very heavily. In the natural resource sector uh, and the reason for doing so is very simple and very straightforward and um, in most of the areas where indigenous people live there are no other or almost no other economic alternatives if you're in northern alberta if you're in mackenzie valley uh, you know it's not as though there's a whole bunch of canadian tire stores opening up down the street <laughs> where you can actually get a job very when true. you're living in a community of 500 people mm-hmm. that has has uh, only airline access right um, and so what's happened is that the communities have said you know we want prosperity we want to have a, a greater well-being our young people want jobs they want opportunities our business, businesses want to have have work and they've they've looked at these things very very carefully you know in the mining sector alone there's over 400 agreements between mining companies and indigenous people and some of them are are very extensive and very positive Employment opportunities, business opportunities, financial returns to communities. So, so th- we've already gone past that point where Indigenous people do exactly the same thing non-Indigenous folks do. Mm-hmm. You know, if I came to you and said that, you know, David, we're going to uh, uh, we're we're going to sort of put a pipeline through your backyard. Uh, chances are you would say, I don't want that. Put it on my neighbor's backyard, or put it in the other city, or put it 50, 100 kilometers away. That's just normal sort of reaction to sure. the disruption of your life. But Indigenous folks have looked at these things and said, okay, what's the trade-off? You know, right now we're poor. Right now we have very few jobs. Government and the society as a whole doesn't really support us very strongly. Um, You know, and and welfare payments from government is not supporting people. That's actually marginalizing them effectively uh, very extensively. So we want to take control of our own destiny. We'll, We'll negotiate with these resource companies on our own terms. So over the last twenty years, indigenous people have have pushed their way into the uh, into the resource economy, helped by legal challenges. The duty to consult and accommodate created a new foundation for indigenous involvement that was, I think, very very important. Um, and so the companies have said, okay, we have to deal with indigenous people. Indigenous people said, we want to get a good deal for ourselves. So over the last twenty years, they've pushed into the oil and gas sector. They've over time, the companies have actually responded very creatively and very extensively. You actually have a some of the best economic relationships in the country are between the resource sector, including oil and gas and indigenous folks and including pipelines incidentally. You know, so so these places that we think are touchstones of conflict are actually sort of uh, forums or, or platforms uh, for economic reconciliation and, in fact, social reconciliation. So so we've we got to get this, understand this more, I think, in Canada. And have to appreciate and 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 and, and recognize uh, the phenomenal contributions that uh, people are making uh, to this kind of pattern of economic sort of re reconnection, uh, and and I think it's it's really important. In the oil and gas sector, of course, they've just hit their stride. Uh, you now have indigenous people who have great extensive agreements with the, with the resource companies, oil and gas firms, partnerships with uh, with pipelines that are unparalleled in the history of this country. They're taking equity positions. They're buying part of the infrastructure. They're buying into natural gas plants and storage facilities in Port McMurray. You know, you're, you're getting this level of engagement. We have hundreds of, of indigenous companies that make a living off of the oil and gas sector in various different ways and thousands of employees. So, So it's just happening now. And so the reason for this paper was to say, where do we sit? Well, we sit at a a sort of a transition point. Um, If the pipelines that are currently under development, the oil and gas fields under development go ahead, We could see a wave of of indigenous opportunity that we quite frankly haven't seen in a hundred years in those oil and gas producing and 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 transport transporting areas Um, and it could be you know economically a very very you know strong point because these are decisions the indigenous people have made for themselves with their own rationale and their own potential Um, if on the other hand the oil and gas industry sort of shuts down i don't think it's ever going to shut down to zero but you hear some people saying that's what it should do if that shuts down um, you know, then, in fact, the, the first people who are going to suffer are going to be the Indigenous folks, because their companies are new, their 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 work in the, in the industry is relatively new, and their investments are largely as yet unrealized. So it really is a turning point in Canadian Indigenous history, and in the relationship, economic relationship, we need Indigenous peoples, the resource sector, and Canadians at
0: large. And all good points uh, that you're making about that it, uh, especially at this point uh, when as you point out uh, this transition where we are looking to more greener ways of of trying to uh, fuel ourselves and uh, uh, et cetera et cetera uh, so then how how are you looking at the future how what are you recommending what are you what are you suggesting that we try to do I- in terms of of coming to a balance somewhere here?
2: Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the majority of Canadians are relatively comfortable with oil and gas production. We certainly use it in our cars. We use it to heat our homes. We, uh, we use it to fuel our propane. <laughs> we do, we use, we use energy resources all the time. And even the OECD organizations are talking about the fact that our, our use in oil and gas globally will remain in high into the 20s, uh, 2030s and even the 2040s. And even then the fall off will not be precipitous. So the world will have an oil and gas sector for the next uh, 20 to 30 years, maybe even long, and, and of course, even beyond that, because we always talk about oil and gas being used strictly as energy. It also plays very prominent roles in the plastics industry and some other sort of uh, uh, manufacturing processes. So this is not a simple thing, and I don't like it when people sort of say, oh, we're either going to have oil and gas or not have oil and gas. If you if you look through the consequences of, of a sharp reduction in oil and gas production in Canada. Um, you would cripple the Canadian economy in very important ways, and you would take a huge number, billions of dollars of resources out of the provincial and federal coffers sort of very quickly. So so I'm I'm not in that apocalyptic group. I think we're going to see the sector going forward. But I think, you know, the the reality is let's listen to First Nations people. We're not, we're not, you know, doing what we used to do, which was just to move in and put a pipeline across their land without any consultation. The Indigenous folks, uh, look at these processes, they they judge them very fairly. Um, and here here's the irony. I think if we look at the Canadian economy as a whole, we should ask a very different question. Why are other sections of the Canadian economy so far behind the natural resource sector? Why is it that forestry, mining, uh, oil and gas production, infrastructure development. Why are those the areas where we're seeing companies reaching out to indigenous people, making partnerships, collaborating? Indigenous people have legal rights in those areas. We see this in the fishing industry and in Maritimes because of the Marshall decision. We're actually seeing an economic transformation of the highest order that's occurring in, 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 as a result of indigenous uh, engagement. And, and very much to the benefit, not just of indigenous people, but of society as a whole. Uh, an increase in Indigenous well-being helps all Canadians. An increase in 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 prosperity and jobs and and all the other things that go with that are a great benefit to to government spending on the one hand, but also just to sort of reconciliation between Indigenous people and other Canadians. So we're in a situation here where we have to take our lead from Indigenous folks. I don't want to I don't want to impose my view. On, on Indigenous people, I, I spend my time talking to Indigenous community leaders and saying, "What are your aspirations? Where are you trying to go? What are your what are your goals and ambitions?" And most of them say really simply, "You know, look around at a at a remote reserve in northern Alberta. Uh, you know, who who else is coming up there? Who, what other companies are up there, sort of trying to do business? Their natural resource business. That is the nature of the economy in the vast majority of the geography of Canada." We can't all have IT operations like Southern Ontario. We can't all have a pharmaceutical industry like like Montreal or, you know, a a high-tech sector like in Vancouver. So these other communities have to find an economic route for themselves if they want to flourish in place. And they desperately want to flourish in place. Let me use one example, if you don't mind. Um, There's a, a massive big LNG project, LNG Canada, developing in Kitimat, British Columbia. Um, it's been done on Heisla land. The Heisla First Nation is located right, right close to Kitimat, side by side with Kitimat, and and the the Heisla worked on this for, dec- for a long time. They they debated this internally. They negotiated with the companies, and I was talking to Crystal uh, Crystal Smith, who was the chief counselor from there, and a really formidable lady and a, quite a lovely lady. Um, and and I sort of asked her and said, "Okay, why why are you doing this? Why what what's the involvement?" I was expecting an economic answer. You know, jobs, prosperity for the community, more money for the government, and, and and when Crystal Smith, the chief counselor, sort of stopped for a second and she looked at me, and we were talking on a Zoom call, and and she said, "You know, Ken, um, there's only five people, that, or I can't remember the exact number, who who still speak the Heisen language fluently," and he said, "If if we don't if we don't do something, we're not going to have the language which is so important to our culture and our and our society and our values and our systems here," and he said, "You know." So how are we going to get the language preserved? He said, when we make money, we we'll make money through this LNG project, which is a massive you know, $40 billion project overall. He said, we will finally have our own money to spend our own way. We don't have to go to Ottawa and beg for money or B.C., Victoria, you know, Victoria British Columbia government to beg for money to actually start a short-term language program. We can build one for, for ourselves from scratch. And we can take our money, use it as we wish. And we're going to use that money to develop our language and our culture and to improve the cultural and physical well-being of our people. So these things are not unrelated. Uh, Indigenous people are tired of being dependent on the government, tired of being poor, quite frankly, looking for economic opportunities and and seeking them where they can can live with them, where they can make an accommodation that works for them. So in in my world, I listen to Indigenous people. I don't try to impose my values. My preferences on them. I listen to what they sort of are saying about their future, um, and until somebody comes up with a better model uh, that it not, does not involve more, more reliance on the government of Canada, uh, then they're going to go in that direction uh, because they always have. They, you know, indig- from the time the Europeans arrived, Indigenous people were involved in the resource economy. They have a very strong and very long and very successful history. Uh, as as business people and traders and trappers, um, so it's, it's all part of a pattern.
0: Before you go any further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E L M N T F M, and and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Ken Coates. He is with the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's a senior fellow and uh, we're talking to him about a paper that uh, it came from the Institute, Where We Go From Here, Indigenous Prosperity at a Crossroads. Uh, Ken is a senior fellow, as I said, with the Institute in Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues. He is the Canadian Research Chair in Regional Innovation and the Johnson-Soyama. Uh, Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, And so, uh, Ken, in in what you were just saying there, absolutely, Indigenous people want to be self-sufficient, don't want to rely on the government. However... Um, you know, that, that relationship, as you talked about, with the government, there are treaties, there is a fiduciary responsibility of the government, which has always been there, and that relates directly back to the natural resources. That's what the treaties are all about. They're about the trade-off of getting the natural resources uh, for the country of Canada that came from uh, the agreements uh, that, that where Indigenous people were supposed to be uh, taken care of in many ways uh, by through those through those treaty agreements, which has, as we know, we, we have communities that are suffering with uh, uh, boil water uh, situations for the last 25 years that, you know, that are that are suffering in other ways that just haven't been kept up to par with the rest of Canada. Look at the child education as well. So, you know, how, how you know, the history hasn't hasn't shown great um, uh, economic and, and, and equality for indigenous people, as you know, uh, up to this point.
2: It certainly hasn't. In fact, it's been awful. Um, If you look at the pattern, you know, uh, I remember reading an American paper, actually, not a Canadian one, and it was describing government policy. And it said the one constant in government policy toward indigenous people is government lawlessness, Mm. where Mm. they avoid their obligations and ignore their, their rights and responsibilities of indigenous people. So if you look at the treaties, those are solemn, sacred deals signed with governments back in some of the 19th century and some more recently. Um, uh, Governments have struggled with uh, keeping up with them. We have agreements like in the Yukon that were signed in the 1990s that are far from fully implemented even now in 2020. You know, so governments struggle with their obligations and with their responsibilities, and there's always a a sort of a a financial pushback. But but in one sense, it's worse than that. It's not just about how much money is transferred. It's the way in which it's transferred. Mm-hmm. If you look at First Nations people, I have a friend who is a, a former student who is a, a chief in Saskatchewan. And his small community, which has about 1,000 people, uh, 1,000 citizens, um, they, they send in 200 reports a year to the government of Canada. So this is They only have a tiny, tiny office. They only have four or five people working there. And they have to send in 200 reports a year to the government of Canada. And they have to apply for the money that actually comes to them. Mm-hmm. So this is not set up like a government-to-government relation. It's set up right. like a supplicant <laughs> right. you know, to, to, rich, to rich person you know, right. a, a situation. Yep. And if you talk to First Nations people on the prairies, around the resource sector, the number one thing they will tell you is they want own source revenue. Sure. They want to have access to the money that comes directly to them that they can spend how they want and spend where they want. That is where you'll get really sustainable cultural programs. It's where you'll actually get long-term economic development, better housing opportunities, better education, better curriculum development. You know, I, I mean, I have enormous faith in Indigenous communities. I have much less faith in government, only because ministers change, governments change, priorities change, funding levels change. You know, First Nations want to be in control of their own destiny. And you know again what they what's just to put this in context as well when you look at the indigenous communities and they make money off off uh, natural resources uh, groups like English River in uh, in the northwest part of Saskatchewan town of about 800 people on reserve and 800 people off reserve small community a very isolated place um, English River. And has developed an economic development corporation that's one of the best in the country, the Vis Day Corporation. They've got major investments in the city of Saskatoon, including more than one urban reserve. They're investing on reserve but also off reserve. They're developing economic opportunities, producing cash flow and things of that sort because their goal is not how much money do they make this year. It's not about what, what, the, what the quarterly return is for shareholders. It's the old seven generations idea. Mm-hmm. How do we prepare for the future? And so they take the money from resources, invest it more generally whenever they can, look to the long term in terms of jobs creation, uh, you know, social programs, government, government operations and things of that sort. There's part of me that gets really excited by what I see. Because you're seeing more and more communities able to break their utter dependence on the government of Canada uh, to get the kind of uh, independence that, in fact, they've aspired to for very, very many years. Um, And, you know, you need to also look at this the other way around, you know, the idea in the non-Indigenous population that that government should somehow knows best for what's best for indigenous people can can make the right decisions. Good gracious, government policy for 160 or 170 years has been the fundamental problem. Right. It isn't the fundamental solution. It's the fundamental problem. Uh, Independence and self-government, letting communities make their own choices. When you look at the education initiatives, the healthcare things that are being done, the economic development, activities. There's 350 uh, Indigenous Economic Development Corporations in this country and more coming all the time. These are where the future lies. And and, and what I basically think Canada needs to do is listen far more closely and carefully uh, to Indigenous people in the full complexity of their positions. Some Indigenous people protest against some Resource project. There's a there's a First Nation in British Columbia, for example, that's been very strong in their opposition to to the Trans Mountain pipeline. Mm. I I completely respect their opposition. Mm. Uh, Most of the indigenous communities actually are in favor of it, uh, but this one is strongly opposed. That same community is building a natural gas plant on their on their on their traditional territory, Mm. and is actually going to be a major partner in a in a project that's worth more than a billion dollars, and it will create jobs and bring. Very substantial financial returns to their community over many years. So I I don't say that to criticize. I think in fact that's exactly what they should do. They should look after their interests um, as as they wish, and they should defend them in the same way all other Canadians do. Hmm. Uh, But a lot of this has to do with natural resource development in the absence of other options. Uh, And you know, we're so far away. You mentioned several times the sort of shift to the green economy. Um, well, I think we can have a, a look. We're, we're really talking about a green society. We haven't really had a, much of a conversation about a green economy, about where we create the revenue, where we create the jobs, where we create the opportunities. Canada's a natural resource economy, and it has been that way forever. Um, it's not going to change anytime in the near future. Um, you know, we have only the city states are different. The Torontos, Vancouver's and Montreal's and Ottawa's, they operate on a different model. But, but quite frankly, even those communities are heavily dependent on the resource sector. You know, the, I don't know if you know this, but the Toronto, uh, city of Toronto is, is the world global centre for for mining. Uh, about 70% of all the money raised for uh, for mining industry around the world goes through Toronto, according to numbers that I've seen over mm-hmm. time. So, so, so we have an interconnection here as Canadians, and we just don't get the most out of it. And that's, I guess, what frustrates me. Hmm. And what really frustrates me is when people try to tell indigenous people, once again, how they should operate their affairs. They can look after their affairs just fine. Thank you very much.
0: Well, just as we finish up, uh, Ken, you know, one of the other things you pointed out, and, and, and you say getting the most out of it there, uh, you, you talk about how you, you want to urge media and public figures to refrain from seeing industry and indigenous communities as diametrically opposed. and And so that would indicate that. You know there is some some sort of a, a of a, a current view of that right now.
2: Well, well, there is. I mean, in fact, protest always—it doesn't matter what it's about—protest always generates more attention than reconciliation and, mm. and, and collaboration. Mm. Um, you know, so if you look at the Tulitan people in Northwest British Columbia, they've they negotiated some excellent agreements uh, with with mining companies, and they're doing very very well. If you look at Northwest Ontario, you'll see communities up there that made some incredible agreements. Uh, with the oil, with the with the electric uh, power generation sector. If you look at Hydro One, according to a friend of mine who's a lawyer in the field, First Nations as a group are the largest single shareholders in Hydro One when it was privatized. You know, is that something you think about? Do you think about First Nations being major hold on, uh, owners of Hydro One? Uh, that's just not part of our, our our way we understand Indigenous engagement. So I think we need a much more honest, comprehensive view of the role of Indigenous people in our economy and in the resource sector as a whole.
0: Great. Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. We thank you for your comments. We thank you for bringing the paper forward so that uh, we can generate more uh, interest and more uh, talk around these topics uh, about going forward. Uh, I, I'm sure there's going to be no no shortage of discussion around these things as we uh, go into the future, especially around the as we try to find some balance between the 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 technologies that we are currently using, such as the oil and gas industry and a call for uh, trying to you know balance and save our our uh, our climate because it seems that it is somehow having that uh, that impact and and maybe uh, right now it's it is at a at a crossroads for us to to look at uh, and try to to come to some way of, of getting a, of the right balance together so that we can all uh, prosper and have a future for our children as well
2: I agree thank you very much
0: You bet. Take care and thanks again for joining us. That's Ken Coates. He is uh, MLI's uh, Monk Senior Fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues. And he is the Canadian Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. It's been a pleasure speaking with him. That's this part of the program. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, and it's 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM, and then you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. J.P. Gladue. He is uh, a newly uh, appointed senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, but he is also the uh, former president of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, which he held for many years, from about 2012 to about 2000. Was it earlier this year, J.P., or was it uh, last year? Yeah, 20. Yeah, twenty twenty, uh yeah. March. Crazy
1: crazy story that I'll share with you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I know I know Canada's had the world's had a crazy, crazy <laughs> year, but yeah, no, it's uh no, it's great. I was yeah, I was with the CCAB for nearly eight years. Mm-hmm. and Uh, It was incredible. I I thoroughly enjoyed that uh, that time of my life. An incredible organization, a great team, and uh, it's great to see the organization proliferating um, under its new leadership with Tabitha Bull. She's doing a great job.
0: Absolutely. And and you know, I had to I paused there for a moment because I was going, was it this year? Because I was actually at the event when you were saying goodbye. I was at that event, so uh, it was nice to be there and Mm -hmm. uh, and see you hand over the reins and things. And that's what I when I paused, I went, that's this year is so messed us up so much uh that oh, i went was it this year or last year i couldn't remember <laughs> it was <a> sh- well <laughs> let, let me let me tell you a little story about the transition okay it was uh,
1: um so i had um i last september i'm losing the previous september <laughs> you know to your point there. i'm starting to get messed yeah, up yeah. um i at the vancouver gala I, I let my board know that um you know i was i was starting to have itchy feet and. Mm-hmm. You know, I I loved the organization, but I was starting to look around, and I was getting some offers that were yep. interesting, and uh, so I wanted to give the board as much time, and I said, you know, I I don't think I'm going to be here for much more than a year, left um, maybe maybe as early as Q1 Q2, but uh, so we started to prep for that, and um, so it was it was um, it was December 3rd, and uh, my my great friends David and Nicole Boucher, uh, they ran the Boucher Group uh, up in Fort McMurray. And, um, and we started chatting in about, uh, October and maybe an offer. I just, I was so excited about to take the helm, the CEO role of the Boucher group. And, uh, so then, uh, March, Friday, the 13th in 2020, uh, was my last day at the CCAB. It was the, the last day on the Ontario power generation board. Mm. The movers came, yeah, the movers came, left me my bed because I needed somewhere to sleep <laughs> that night and came back the next day and picked it up after I hopped on the plane with my daughter. Uh, for a little vacation, uh, COVID hit, oil price hit, mm. uh, tanked, and uh, came back to uh, Canada quickly. Um, and thank goodness, I'm great friends uh, with my uh, daughter's mother still, even though we've been it's uh, been eight years now. I guess wow. Uh, but I found myself unemployed, <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, literally waking up uh, uh, on the couch at my ex wife's place with a with a suitcase to my name mm. in a global pandemic, because right. uh, you know even Nicole couldn't take me out. Oh yeah. So Fast forward to uh, Christmas 2020 and my life is, I de- again, it's pivoted significantly, but uh, we can we can talk more
0: about that. Well, yeah, for sure. And, and I'm glad you mentioned about, uh, you know, when what the other roles and some of the other things that you had to pass up on because of, of your other roles that you were taking on. Uh, because it does seem from looking over, you know, uh, your, your your CV that you had a lot and do have a lot going on in your life. Um, sitting on many boards and those kind of things, uh, but uh, are you? Is the is the A to A rail? Is that, uh, is that happening now?
1: That is that is my that is my full time gig. Okay. Um, for absolutely, um, Sean McCoshin, the the founder and chairman of the of A to A Rail, uh, brought me on board. Uh, so I'm going to use as many puns as I can. <laughs> uh, back in June and uh appointed me um president of a to a canada which is the alaska to alberta railway mm-hmm. corp uh and then in september uh, end of september president uh trumpo going uh, president trump signed off on the uh, uh on the uh the cross-border permit um which really kicked the project into high gear and um and i went on full-time with a to a but you know the other I, i'm i've got a few other things that i'm helping out with here and there but one of the one of the I guess, if I may, one of the proudest moments that I've had lately, as well as A to A, is uh, being appointed to the Suncor board with an organization and a leader that I, I've admired for years. Um, so that happened uh, just in November, and it's been an incredible ride. I've, I've got a, a few things on the go. I'm the chair of the uh, Mikasu group of companies, which is one of Canada's largest uh, uh, indigenous Economic Development Corporations. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to remove myself, uh, resign. And um, and we've had some really good conversations about it because mm-hmm. conflicts. But right. uh, you know, it's just been a, it's been a crazy year. But uh, right. I'm I'm so so thrilled about where I've landed and and now with the MLI uh, working right. with amazing people like Ken Coates et cetera. It's been right. it's
0: been incredible. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about that a, a little bit as well and and some of the other things you mentioned. Um you, you know, uh looking over your I mean you've had a lot of uh, a lot of work in the forestry. You you I believe you you have a degree in that area as well.
1: Yeah, I started off um actually I was with my my mom, my dad, my dad's wife last night um and uh, so small, 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 small family gathering during mm. this crazy time. <laughs> um, and we were reflecting on that. Yeah, know, my mom dropped me off uh, in St. Marie when I was 18. I did my college diploma. I worked at First Nations all over Ontario. And I moved to BC and did some forestry work out there. And then I studied the Native American Forestry Program down in Flagstaff, Arizona. And yes, there are trees down there, David. Um, very, <laughs> very diverse ecosystem, actually, all the way to subalpine pur and uh, fir. sorry. Uh, and then, and then um, moved uh, to Ottawa. I was working uh the National Aboriginal Forestry Association. Then I consulted for a number of years. Then I worked for my First Nation. I did the executive MBA at Queen's. And then I did the Institute for Corporate Directors, uh, Director um, Designation. Um, but interestingly, uh, you know, my dad was a logger. My grandfather was a logger. My mm. other grandfather worked on the pipelines. It goes right through my reserve, the gas lines here. Mm. But I'm looking out on Lake Nippigan in, in my uh, in my home here. Mm. Uh, I've moved back to my reserve. Mm. I'm in nice. Sandpoint First Nation, northeast of Thunder Bay. Yeah, love it. That's
0: fabulous. Great to hear. And thanks for giving us that that quick history of yourself um, and, uh, you know, and, and also your extended family in terms of your family and how it's connected into the logging industry and those kind of things. because. Certainly, uh, looking over your CV and, and all the, the kind of works that you've been involved with uh, are, are very sort of uh, uh, corporate business uh, kind of driven um, and, and a lot to do with uh, those, those kind of industries. And I, I would like to come back to that. And you mentioned um, the Macdonald-Laurier M- Institute, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we we recently did um, uh, have someone on the show uh, that uh, that you just mentioned, actually. And um, and we we spoke with with him a little bit as well. And and I wanted to to talk about because I was not familiar with the McDonald laurier Institute, so I did some research on it, of course. And and of course, it's based on McDonald and Laurier and mm-hmm. you know one of the things as i'm sure you're aware uh that we all know now about uh, macdonald is he doesn't have a great a great history in terms of first nation history mm-hmm. and and i wanted to ask you about that because uh you know it says the institute you know it's, in, it's it's there to exist and renew the legacy of these two towering figures of our history so i'm wondering you know in your role how do you see that you might be able to help or or sort of uh, you know bring new new vision to to the kind of role that that this institute based on those things can can help with in in the future uh of of dealing and and looking at indigenous organizations people's communities
1: yeah that's a great question and it's 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 uh... It's, as we all know, a challenging part of our history, but also some some, you know, first founder for for the the, the new country, if you will. Um, I've always been someone who doesn't mind getting into the corners. Um, I like actually um, working in the corners where there's diversity of views that are sometimes juxtaposed against my own, because um, I think that's where. I think that's where the real growth happens. That's where the real learning happens. And that's where the real change happens. Um, You know, too often we get comfortable in our own space where we're uh, reflecting back to people that think and act like us and uh, because it's comfortable, right. Mm. Um, You know, as an example right now, I'm the inaugural chair. So this is another thing that I that I'm doing. Um, uh, inaugural chair of the Boral Leadership Champions. And I used to work for the Canadian Boral Initiative. It's a, it's a it's a kind of a rebirth of, of some ideas there. But what's really fun about that, and, and you know, Kathy Wilkinson, uh, she's a longtime friend and she's 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 one of the uh, people that run uh, and I work with on this on this initiative. Um, and when Kathy asked me if I would be interested, because it's very conservation based. Mm. Um and Indigenous empowerment, which of course is is what I'm all about. And I said, Kathy, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I'm an oil and gas guy. I'm a forestry guy. I'm a mining guy, you know, natural resources. Um, and so just, you know, are you sure you want me as your chair? So said, that's exactly why we need you there because we need somebody that understands um, the various issues that are going to be brought up at the table. We can't all be thinking the same way. I, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's conservation groups, there's finance. And so, it, so, and when I'm working in the natural resource sector, you know, I go, listen, we need, we need to make sure our elders are at the table talking about what's important to them talking about uh, and from community leadership, what's important from conservation. We can't develop everything. We need to make sure we protect the land, you know, as an example, I'm looking out at my lake right now, David. Uh, Our community's lake, and (laughs) it's biggest lake in Ontario. Mm. Uh, You know, I spend a lot of time out here. I love it. Um, That's surrounded by the Ontario borders, and you know, the the lake is protected. Uh, But we also have a gas line that goes by. We have mining activity in the region. We have a sawmill in our reserves. So, you know, we've got to find the balance. And so that's what MLI is. It's really about those 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 views coming and trying to find that balance. And. You know, having all these different issues, whether it be trade or um, Indigenous issues, political health care, social sciences, etc., you've got all these incredible thinkers that are lending their voices to help uh, Canadians, policymakers, each other to think a little bit different than uh, about the issues than they ever will. And of course, uh, my strength and passion uh isn't isn't squarely within the indigenous affairs uh bucket but that doesn't mean that i don't care about social license and social issues and national security you know economic policies etc and energy so it's uh it's great to have all these real incredible thinkers at the table and um, you know it's uh it's it's supporting broader broader perspective
0: Mm. Yeah. And and um, by the way, I, I'm sorry, I failed to mention uh, Ken Coates, the, the gentleman you mentioned that we had on oh, the show yeah. earlier. And uh, and it, I, his name just slipped my mind there for a moment. So it was great to talk with him. And it was nice to have that sort of precursor to uh, having you on to talk about the, the, you know, the MLI. And and going back to that, before I forget, I didn't say this off the top of the show, but congratulations uh, to, uh, you know, being uh, uh, the new senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, by the way.
1: Thank you. It must they must have got wind of all the gray hair that I've grown over the last? <laughs> week or stuff, which is which is <laughs> which is it's definitely taking over. Which is fine.
0: <laughs> so, in terms of you know being appointed to the senior fellow, how did that come about? Did they approach you? How how did this all work out?
1: Yeah, you know I've known Ken. For years, mm. actually, um, one of the first conferences that CCAB hosted, uh, well, when I was at the helm, and and um, and uh, people kept saying you got to get this Ken Coates guy mm. uh, connected to this conference, and I was like, I read up on him a little bit. I was like, Wow, he's he's really fantastic. And then listening to him speak, that like I I was absolutely hooked on on his passion and messages. which really interesting because Ken's not indigenous, mm, but. Right care so much about indigenous issues and the empowerment of of, of our communities and the, and the the importance of economic uh, development etc right. and uh, so Ken and I've been friends for years um, and then just getting connected with his colleagues um, you know because I think a lot of the work that I was so fortunate to lead at CCAB with an exceptional team um, we you know we did great work uh, and so and, and as I mentioned the, organization continues to do great work and what a great platform for me for almost eight years where you know the we got our ideas out we we increased the presence uh of the organization and more importantly the issues around indigenous economic empowerment in canada and and i think that really resonated with the folks at mli over the years that my steadfast commitment to these issues um and a very balanced approach too i mean i as i mentioned earlier you know the CCAB there's there's all sorts of different members indigenous and non-resource mm-hmm. development uh, um, to uh, telecommunications to health all the things that are in here uh, within the MLI were all existed within the membership and so that helped informed help inform me as a leader uh, to to be able to speak more intelligently most of the time anyways uh to a lot of these these broad issues that are facing canadians and the intersection with indigenous people and communities and i think the MLI just took notice over years and and um you know i was honored uh when um when ken uh you know put me in contact and um and, and away we went mm. we uh it's just been it's it's been fantastic
0: Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E L M N T F M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure uh, to uh, have on the show with me Mr. J.P. Gladeau. He is uh, just appointed the senior fellow with the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. We're talking to him. He's also the former uh, president of the Canada... Canadian council for Aboriginal business uh, just as recently as earlier this year, which seems like a decade ago for some reason, it's all down to COVID now, I think though, but uh, congratulations to him uh, on the new appointment and, uh, and also with his, his new role at a to a rail and uh, that's Alberta to, uh, Oh, I forgot the name, Alberta to Alaska to Alberta Rail. Yes. Uh, yes. Thank you. And, um, and congratulations on that. and, you know, with as we were talking about the the MLI, the McDonald uh, Laurier Institute, and your appointment there, um, you know, when we when we spoke with, um, as I mentioned before, uh, Mr. Ken Coates on the show, uh, and he he was there, and he did uh, bring and talk about the the history of the organization to some degree, but also about the. Um, the desire to bring Indigenous uh, people into the role, which, of course, uh, JP, as I'm sure you know, it should have happened a long, long, long time ago. Uh, Indigenous people should have always been at the table, should have always been, uh, had their, their, uh, their rights, their privileges, their their, uh, their hand in this because of treaty organizations, uh, treaties, et cetera, et cetera, that have been uh, ongoing throughout this country's uh, development. Um, but, you know, again, the other side of this is, uh, JP, you're you you come from this, as you mentioned, from uh, forest industry uh, 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 logging sort of side of things and looking at resources and economy. And there's another side to this that we also now need to keep in mind. And that is something that became very prevalent prior to COVID-19, which the youth of the world brought to our attention in buckets. And that is the climate. And, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is, I, I, the way I've been looking at this, and I'm not sure how you view this, I, I think we need to err on the side of caution. Whether this is a fact that, that the climate crisis that we're in is man-made or non-man-made, the world is going through a change, and we are seeing this. And the youth, uh, as, you know, I've, I've interviewed some youth people. I've seen what – I have a daughter who is 15. You have a daughter. And my daughter is extremely concerned and we now see that this stress that this climate uh, and and view of are we going to even have a future is placing on our youth so how do we you know how do you view this and how do you think that the McDonald Laurier Institute and the organizations you're involved with should view this going forward in terms of wanting to make sure we have a future for our kids yeah
1: yeah you know uh, you know it's a great question and yeah my daughter is going to be 17 on january second and um you know i I obviously care deeply she comes up to the land all the time and she's got a real appreciation of of what it takes to um we we harvested our first moose together this Mm. year and she got birds with me and you know she she watches me cut firewood for heat and um you know and she's got a real appreciation um and then she brings that knowledge back uh and, and she just did this great project on Indigenous uh, Freedom Road and connecting Indigenous youth to, to schools up in Kenora. I watched her her presentation; it was great. She's got a really great appreciation. Um, you know, I also you know, uh, you know Brian uh, Lee Crowley. He's 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 the managing director at MLI. He brings a lot of these voices. Him and his organization bring a lot of these voices, rounded voices, to the table because we we've got to be thinking and acting differently. Am I concerned about the environment? Yes, of course I am. Am I inv- climate change is a real thing? We've got it. We've got to deal with it. Um, I spent time this summer actually um, with with a coalition of of folks um, for resilient recovery, and a lot of the focus was around uh, when, what can we do within the within the in the clean, renewable energy uh, sectors, batteries, et cetera. And, you know, those conversations need to be happening and those issues need to be supported. Those are the, that's, that's what our future is going to look like, but that's not today. And that's not even tomorrow. That's still a ways away Mm. and there's transition that needs to happen. Um, We can't forsake, um, you know, the, uh, the economy and I'm not saying go clear, cut down all the trees. Uh, What I'm saying is manage the forest in conjunction, with the indigenous knowledge holders Mm. and and harvest responsibly. Same thing with mining. I mean, we want, we want solar, we want wind, we want all, well, it takes tons of mining to get all the material to, to transition into Mm. these greener economies, oil and gas, oil and gas. I mean, look gas, like the LNG project. We had 21st nations along that line, including the Wet'suwet'en who wanted that, who want that project, one segment of that community, the hereditary chiefs, um, one segment of the hereditary chiefs right. uh, had a dispute. And I, you know, I, 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 Karen is, is a good friend of mine. Uh, you know, chief uh, Charlene Gale and the, in mm-hmm. the ter- Northwest uh, BC, uh, uh, the chief um, Crystal Smith, you know, I, I, I speak with these leaders all the time and, you know, get a, get a chief Crystal Smith on your, on your, Chief Counsel Crystal Smith on his show. You'll you'll hear a lot of these messages as well. Is that we we need to develop our resources. We need to be the ones benefiting and actually helping direct the way these projects get done. The gas to offset all the coal in, in Asia. I mean that would be a huge win for our world. Um, you know we're we're, we're 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 we need to transition from oil and gas like over time. But we're never going to fully transition from oil and gas. A lot of the products that. Uh, you know bitumen that's in our roofing and our roads. All these things that, uh, and I'm going to tie it back to my daughter's experience. People, and no offense to all the people that live in Toronto or in the big cities, but if you don't get up to northern parts of our country to really understand and interact with us, and all those uh, all all the all the goods and services that get to the big cities, well, that comes at a, at a cost, but it also comes at a benefit to northern communities that manage all these resources on their behalf energy just doesn't appear. You've got to generate, you've got to create um, uh, dams to generate electricity. Yes, solar is part of it. You know, I sat on OPG's board around nuclear, Uh, that's clean energy. Um, So I I just think, and and that's why the MLI is such an important base for these conversations, because we need to educate ourselves more. Um, Can I spend more time uh, learning about Uh, climate change initiatives. Absolutely. You know, that's what I immersed myself a little more in this summer uh, working with the coalition for, you know, the the resilient, clean recovery. And, um, you know, but, but I just find our country and God forbid that we ever get so polarized like our, our, our cousins to the South of us, where we can't have conversations. Mm. Um, We just need more of them. We just need to educate each other more and it's going to take time.
0: Mm. Yeah, you mentioned something there earlier, indigenous knowledge. Uh, it's something that I feel is, is slowly creeping back into the mainstream, but it's also something that I believe has immense uh, uh, value that, that people and the mainstream could benefit from because of the thousands and thousands of years that indigenous people have lived on the land and understand the land. I think you know, indigenous people understand the land so well, and it just seems to be overlooked it seems to be well you don't have a three letters behind your name so you know it doesn't count you know what i'm saying
1: yeah you know you're absolutely right um and we have to approach it differently so with the a to a rail project that i'm so blessed to lead on the canadian side of the border with a really great team um we have and our our founder sean he said when he approached me this is my vision i'm like i'm totally in line with your vision which is making sure that indigenous people Uh, have an equity position up to 49% of that rail, that indigenous people and the land users are the one determining where the line goes. And so interacting and supporting community elders and land users to understand where the best place to put a rail and why wouldn't we use those generations of knowledge to build infrastructure in this country? Absolutely. And then all the employment jobs that'll come with it. Our most important relationship is the indigenous communities. And in Canada, if, if corporations and, infra- and anybody that builds infrastructure in this country does not understand the absolute paramount, fundamental need to empower Indigenous communities as real partners in this country, if you don't understand that, in Canadians, if you don't understand that, you really are missing the boat because they are paramount. We won't build anything in this country unless our people are absolutely on board. Hmm. And that's just fundamentally the way it is now.
0: Hmm. Finally. Yes, finally. Uh, JP, just before we go, uh, as we mentioned, you're uh, the new senior fellow uh, for the MLI, the McDonald uh, laurier L- 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 Institute, and uh, you're going to be focusing on indigenous issues, those kind of things uh, in your role. How large of an, in- of an uh, organization is the McDonald laurier Institute and, and what kind of um, uh, 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 power or influence does it have?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm I'm getting more detailed uh, and more acquainted with the organization than ever I ever have before. Um, but you, they bring in experts. Uh, if you actually go to the website, and it, the list goes on and on. There's, I don't know, probably 25, 30 experts around uh, the issues that we're we're talking about. Um, and they host events. Um, you know, I've seen uh, you know a good friend Ken Coates hosting mm-hmm. panels. Um, they'll. They'll intersect. They're nonpartisan, which is wonderful, yep. as as yep. we talked about at the very beginning. Um, but the issues that are come to the table, there's no time lapse. They're they're on it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're writing about it. They're creating uh, articles. They're creating um, panels. They're, they're 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 right up to date. Um, so as issues come to the to the front, um, they're they they are there. Mm-hmm. I would say as far as the influence they have I mean when you look at the people like they're just absolute exceptional people right. one of the, one of my um good friends uh Stephen Buffalo who's a senior fellow on Indigenous Reconciliation he's been there for a while now and you know Stephen Stephen's got an incredible network he's he's an influential guy in the in the oil and gas sector as an example
0: right We're going to have to leave it there, JP, but real pleasure speaking with you. Congratulations once again. And, you know, it'd be great to touch base with you maybe a little bit more once you get into the role, get a little more comfortable and and get things, you know, once the world maybe gets back to a little more of the new normal, whatever that might be, uh, and touch base with you and talk with you again.
1: Thank you, David. Really appreciate the time and the interest. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the show. We really appreciate it. And that is, of course, the voice of J.P. Gladohi He is just appointed the senior fellow with the MacDonald Laurier Institute, and he will be looking after the Indigenous Affairs area of that. It's been a pleasure speaking with him. He's also the outgoing uh, president at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, which he held from 2012 until 2020. And that is this part of Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to the show. Each and every day right here on element fm we'll see you again tomorrow this has been moment of truth with david moses
1: element element,
2: element fm